Asia Tech Podcast with Graham Brown and Michael Waits. I'm talking with Giovanni Zangani, the founder of Maestro Equity Partners. Did I get that right? Yep, correct. Okay. And where are you from originally, Giovanni? Originally, I'm uh, near Milan from uh, Italy, so a bit far away. Okay, I was now based in Chimin. I was going to guess that, but I think like in today's world, it's so hard to determine just from somebody's name, like where they're from. Mm-hmm. <laughs> indeed, indeed. <laughs> so I figured I'd just give you the opportunity to say it yourself. How um, You're based in where? In Vietnam? Yes, Ho uh, Chi Minh City for the last uh, four years, about four years. So how do you end up in Vietnam? Yeah, well, uh, actually, it's been uh, quite, uh, quite a journey. I was a uh, former uh, management consultant, so firstly in Europe, in Milan, and then I moved to U.S. And I really was, uh, I really was interested to move into investments and private equity because, I mean, uh, you know, right, when you are a consultant, often you miss a bit the kind of uh, the feeling of uh, the real contribution you, you might have with your clients in terms of, you know, your projects that are quite uh, short-term. And you are not really a full alignment because at the end, you you know, after you finish the project, you, you go away and you don't see the results. So I, I basically pivoted to Asia, made an MBA in Hong Kong. And uh, and there where I started, you know, to have uh, some experience uh, in the in the country. And I, I is where really I realized, okay, I really want to get into private equity. But uh, China at that time was, you know, five years ago already most of the returnees where, you know, getting most of the, the jobs I was trying to target. Uh, instead, I've been approached by a local fund. And uh, I, I saw actually, you know, very similar story with China. I saw the potential of, of Vietnam. And I think for a foreigner, actually, there was much more room for to really make a, make a move and uh, have an impact. So I decided to, to move to Vietnam. And, uh, and then I've been here for the last four years, first with the, the company that uh, hired me, and then... Uh, I moved to a you know bigger family office, and uh, eventually uh, a little bit of a combination of few factors like uh, right timing, few companies that really were interested to work with with me and my team, and a few investors interested to work with me. I decided to set up my own uh, in, uh, investment firm, and it's just a few months back, but uh, quite a exciting experience so far. So, right, so it's a great story. Can we back up a little bit? So, how yeah. long were you at Accenture? Accenture, I've been basically almost four, four years. Okay. Almost four years, yeah. So a decent amount of time. What yeah. do you learn? And, you know, I always looked at the consulting business with a little bit of envy, actually. And I, I've just found that people come out of a consulting business with, with a really strong understanding of, you know, not just what a business, not just how a business runs, but like just the nuts and bolts of how to set things up, what the metrics are that really help a business grow and thrive. I'm just mm-hmm. wondering, like, what you can... How do you characterize what you learned at Accenture? I think, I mean, definitely what you, you say is really is really important, especially what I notice in the investment. If you go investment in emerging market, at the end, it's really, especially in the in the growth capital that I'm trying to target, it's really about what you do with the company after you put your money. And uh, there is all of kind of uh, little things and projects you might, you might need. And, you know, you cannot hire always consultants. So you learn a bit of everything, right? You have a toolkit that is always useful. And you start from, I would say, you know, like basic project management uh, where run, uh, you know, uh, skills. And then you're going to more uh, be able to understand data. And the data in a world that is, you know, 
quite uh, I mean in general we say we, we have so much data but if you are in Vietnam uh, good luck there are a lot of uh, you know a lot of aspects of the business that you really have to try to to try to take uh, a bit of a guess leveraging uh, you know what uh, what you can collect and um, so I would say a bit of survival uh, uh, spirit definitely the kind of mindset never never give up quite uh, quite that is a quite a quite strong uh, culture in Accenture so you really you, no matter what which situation you are you you really learn how to you know to not uh, get discouraged and just uh, keep uh, keep going and driving and pushing so that's definitely helping in a, in, a, in a market like Vietnam that sometimes is a bit uh, you know frustrating you have all kind of different uh, challenges from you know from even from administrative standpoint so everything is not just about uh, making your investment, looking at the screen on a deal and then uh, making you know, or work with lawyers and bankers. Here is really try to make everything happen at the same time and you must most of the time you are, you know, really you you have to lead if you you know if you want to have uh, to protect yourself and to to minimize the risk. You might you might even need to you know to lead the legal part, like all the aspects of a deal that usually in 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 more developed market there are there are different uh, subjects play operators that they take care here I think you really have to master a bit of everything and that's kind of you know skill set definitely was was uh, very useful right in that I got from from Accenture and uh, industry wise I would say like in terms of verticals I work on retailers uh, FMCG company and uh, in terms of skills uh, data mining and uh, analytics also something that became quite uh, getting hotter and hotter so I would say I would I, I leverage a bit uh, uh, these aspects. So first, uh, a bit of project management. Uh, second, vertical uh, retail and uh, FMCG. And third aspect is uh, analytics and you know, uh, be able to read data and uh, whatever you can get and try to to make a smart a smart decision. Right. I mean, it just seems like to me you come out with it's almost like getting a secondary level or maybe third level MBA. Correct. Correct. It, it just it just does, but it's almost like a real life MBA in the sense that if you learn sort of the theory around business and accounting and money management and finance, and I'm not sure what you studied, we can talk about mm -hmm. that in a second. But when you're getting your MBA, then what you learn when you're at Accenture is really how to apply that stuff. And and maybe it's great to get your MBA after you go do that, so you can see what the applications are for what you're learning while you're learning, as opposed to just sort of seeing it from a theoretical perspective. Mm hmm. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So when you, you go from Italy, you work in the United States, what was mm -hmm. the thought process around, you know, there are plenty of, you know, reasonable places to get an MBA in the U.S. and also in Europe. Why why did you choose to go to Hong Kong of all places? Yeah, good question. So basically, uh, back then, already U.S., the kind of the economy, the economy was not uh, so great. So there were projects, but I would say there was a lot of competition to, to get decent projects. So that was more like the, the macro consideration. So that definitely Asia was, you know, growing and uh, I could see like uh, US was okay, definitely better than Europe, but was still uh, not, uh, you know, what not like a uh, few years back when uh, you could, you know, there was projects everywhere. And uh, more instead of like um, on a personal standpoint, I was um, like, you know, it, 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 Italy is a bit, you know, South Europe, that's kind of... Uh, very relationship based the culture 
and uh, and definitely I realized when I was in the US that most of my friends came from this side of the world. Really? So it was more like on a personal consideration, I could see it. actually, you know, Asia in general, of course, every country has a bit of a different uh, different aspect, but uh, they in general, they tend to be a very relationship-based society. And when I moved to Vietnam, I realized uh, actually, you know, it was a really pretty good guess. I really feel I fit the countries, basically like Italy, relationship-based, strong food culture, uh, you know, good weather, everything, but is young and growing. So I really feel uh, I can uh, basically really fit, not just on a professional standpoint, I can uh, I can really, you know, make a career in this side of the world. And I think was, uh, I mean, now I'm really still pretty happy with, uh, with the decision I made. Yeah, I mean, it sounds awesome. You and I can talk for hours about why being in Asia in general, but in Southeast Asia in particular, is mm-hmm. such an amazing place to be. Yeah. And just go back again and tell me, so... You you started where at Mekong is that your first was that your first role in Vietnam? Yes, correct. So, and how does that happen? I mean, do they come out and recruit you? You know, you said you were looking at things in China as well, and I kind of agree with you. Again, we can talk for a while about why yep. it's a better opportunity in Vietnam, but Vietnam itself also ends up being quite a domestic market, right? China as well, mm-hmm. but yep. Vietnam is just so young, right? Mm-hmm. And when you arrive there for the first time, you take this job at Mekong, like what's going through your mind, right? What, what's your, what are the things you want to achieve? What are you thinking about? What's your experience going to be like when you move to Vietnam? Mm. So I honestly, I, I mean, I, I look at a bit on a macro level. I could see definitely I read a bit of, you know, secondary, a smaller China story. That's uh, what everyone uh, would say. Um, and that would, you know, for my career standpoint, I thought, okay, this is kind of, uh, could be interesting. So let's, let's give it a try. I mean, I could, uh, you know, stay and guess for, for long, but uh, I really wanted first to, to, to try and to, to have this uh, kind of experience since I still want to get into private equity. So I said, okay, anyway, it will, uh, it will be good. Even at some point I decided to, you know, if it's not uh, the best, the best market to be in. But then when I start to, I move and uh, from the first project I had, Actually, I realized that uh, it's not just China. I think there is something more, especially if you look at South South Vietnam, South uh, Vietnam, yes, like Ho Chi Minh and the, the South area. Actually, the way people do business is uh, is much less, you know, political, less, uh, much more, uh, is easier for foreigners. So I realized uh, already from the first or second board meeting, I saw like people from you know from the fund yelling each other with the, the CEO of the company in a very you know like very frank way. And I was impressed. Like I, I did some consulting project before in uh, in Shanghai, and I realized, you know, there was there was quite a difference. And it was not just about, you know, it's similar, it's a smaller China story, but I saw really like a bit of the, of course, the entrepreneur mindset of Vietnamese people, but I really saw this kind of influence that probably they had, they had from the past, from the you know American, French. They really had like the mentality to do business. I I found quite. Uh, Easier than uh, than in China, so less political, less uh, by Joe, less uh, time uh, in the bar, and really you know more focus on, on doing the business and things that uh, that matter. So that was quite uh, quite a good sign for me. Yeah, and I mean I also like Vietnam. You mentioned it earlier, though. It's a very young population. If you mm-hmm. look at the pop- if you look at the population distribution, it's heavily clustered around you know what 15 to 29, 15 to 28, and the median age yeah. in Vietnam is 28 years old. But that's the median, right? Yes. And what it means is that it's it's very dynamic. And like you said, you're coming into a situation where the country is, 
you know, you mentioned the French, you mentioned the United States, and what you're talking about is a country that had been torn by war until sort of the <coughs> 70s, and that, that impact of, of that um, history was there until like the 80s and early 90s, and you're in a country where I, I like to say it's the, there's never been a, been a better time to be sort of a young Vietnamese boy or girl or man or woman because basically for the first time in, in the recent history, at least, anything is possible, right? Like you said, Correct. they're not sort of encumbered anymore. You can talk about political systems all you want, but on a day-to-day -day basis, it's a relatively free country and people are not, un are not encumbered by the politics. And I was watching a conversation yesterday where somebody was saying something, I forget what it was, but like, oh, that's never going to happen in Vietnam, whatever it was. And the reality is that if you had asked the parents of today's children, you know, would there be online banking? Would there be, you know, mm -hmm. mobile applications? And so they would have said never in Vietnam, even if it existed in the rest of the world, it's not going to happen here. And I think what you see is that the technology that exists today just gives people more opportunity and more freedom. And just because of the way the world political system is working as well, it's a great time to be there. Do you want to talk basically, you know, with that as sort of a premise, what do you mm -hmm. learn at Mekong and then when you go to your family office, I want to talk about your business a little bit later, but what do you learn when yep. you're there that says, okay, I've made the right choice. I've actually gotten a few things done, and this is going to be the best place for me to be for more than just a couple of years. Like, I'm going to make this home for a while. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, the first consideration I told you was more about uh, how you can really, you know, able to work together with the local companies. That was, of course, a question mark for a foreigner coming here and right. not mastering the language and so on. So that was for first consideration. The second is actually see that happen because, you know, Mekong, they are foreigner, uh, founder is foreigner. And still I was able to witness basically the growth of uh, mobile work, like, you know, the great uh, retail electronics store and see going from few, you know, few, few shops. And now it's like 1000 shop is a, is a big company. So really be able to see in first place, like uh, that kind of growth. And uh, I mean, not I'm saying that it was an easy road, but, you know, like compared to what I could have seen in the U.S. or in Europe, this kind of grow and everything seems easy. Like as long as, you know, you, you are try to you, you go, you are in the right direction and you pull out, the, you know, you touch the right button. You, you think you believe you start to believe that you can make everything happen. So um, that kind of confidence when you start to see one company, two companies. Is what actually brought me to anticipate a bit, a little bit of time of in a normal private equity career and start to okay, let's uh, let's work on something on myself because I, I really start to believe okay, I, there are a few things that you know, few kind of sector and company that I believe I understand where they can go and I really believe I can convince also people in the old world to put some money and uh, make the you know this uh, this uh, investment uh, quite uh, quite good investment so. So with all of the sort of noise that you hear coming out of Southeast Asia in sort of the tech space and the venture capital space, mm -hmm. you know, Mekong itself, but then Meister Equity Partners following on, you're not really playing in that space. You're more into the private equity business. Do you want to just yeah. talk a little bit about what the difference is and then mm -hmm. why you've chosen to go that way as opposed to, you know, building funds that invest in technology startups? Yeah. Uh, so first of all, there is a bit of uh, background, right? So Please. I I invest. Uh, what I mean is like I invest in sector that I understand. Especially you are in a foreign country, you take typically minority, especially in the past. Now you know you have more probably less limitation from the government, but uh, still you 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 typically invest as a minority investor. 
if you want to have influence and not get, you know, rip off or have any trouble, you really need to understand the business. And understanding means, means really have a deep, deeply, you know, operational understanding of uh, what's going on. So that's already made a bit of selection because my background in the, you know, in Accenture and before was more on retail, uh, FMCG. So this is more like traditional business. Uh, that's what one uh, one point. The second aspect is that basically you, I, I mean, definitely Vietnam is a young population. Education-wise, comparing, you know, global ranking is doing quite well. But uh, I don't know. I still, uh, I don't, I still don't see it as a Silicon Valley, right? So. Um, I there are you know quite a few good companies, but if I look like really the the big companies that I saw build up in this uh, in this side of the world for now for me still uh, driven by consumer you know in the more traditional way and technology what I see and I understand mostly you know is uh, basically is consumer internet and or you know like services related to any way to serve this population. So I try to stay stick what with what I understand. And uh, but I'm aware that is the young population is also, of course, is it means great upside potential, but it means also risk in terms of they really change behavior quite quickly. We saw in the West as well, you know, millennial they are disruptive in many industries, just in many traditional industries that they are the one that I'm looking at. So I have to be careful because I'm sure Vietnam as well. From one side, you try to be local in terms of which investment uh, you are going to touch. At the, at the same time. You know that this kind of young, this young population is going to adapt quickly to, you know, to more Western and international global standard. So you have to play a bit between, try to anticipate a little bit these uh, these trends. But I I feel it's still more predictable than going uh, in tech space or uh, you know this um, you know this kind of companies where there will be much uh, bigger bet and uh, you know less less predictable and and definitely for especially if you want to focus on Vietnam. I believe you can invest. I would be able to invest in one, uh, let's say, FMB company and make it a good return if you put five million dollar in five years, even if it's just a Vietnam story. If I'm in the tech space, I'm not sure if I'm able to do that only in Vietnam. Like uh, I would consider it in, at, at least it has to be regional. So is uh, that that's a little bit what you know what is uh, my my gut in the, in in this in this regard. No, I think you make a really good point actually. Um, and it's, you know, no insult intended to Vietnam, but you're right. As, as the education sort of level climbs up the global rankings and it's doing that rather quickly, right? I mean, Vietnam is known yeah. for rising rapidly in um, global education rankings, but it also means that the economy, particularly from a GDP per capita standpoint is more in a stage of, you know, small businesses, whether it's SMEs or middle-sized businesses, even larger businesses, really figuring out how to modernize their business and become more sort of capital efficient and financial efficient. Is that a fair mm-hmm. characterization? Yeah, I think is a uh, yeah is a is a good uh, good point. Uh, I agree. And what that means is that the opportunity embedded in a business that's already let's call it successful, if you can make it more financially efficient. Um, and give them and bring that sort of finance sort of part of that business and even the growth part, not just locally, meaning in that town where the business operates, but in sort of the local region and in the whole country. If you can make that more efficient, you can take a business that can compete better and faster and more efficiently and can make it more profitable. And like you said, at this stage of the country's development, from a financial standpoint, maybe the private equity business is actually a better investment than the venture capital business where 
you know, the fund, I'm curious to know like where you get, how you get funded, right? Because that's an mm-hmm. interesting side of the business to me too. But from a VC business, you go out, you have limited partners, you have general partners, you invest in small companies, and that money can be locked up for five to seven years before you even understand whether it's going to be successful or not, right? Not if it's going to be, you know, not if it is successful. And it sounds mm-hmm. like you're already investing in businesses that sort of have a successful business model that are creating cash flow. And you come in and make investments and just make them way more efficient and hence add more value and create more value. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, even I would say there is a bit, it's not just efficiency. Definitely they are, I mean, I, I talk mo- uh, mostly on retail as, or re- retail businesses. So before uh, 2015, there was much, you know, the sector was very protected from the WTO, etc. So this company, they really had no competition. It was super fragmented in all categories you are considering from, uh, I don't know, from bags to apparel. There was no real uh, international competition. So they built quite successful small, small businesses. The, the problem is like from 2015, when they, you know, the government started to waive all this kind of protection, they start more and more competition. So they are, you know, they are quite, they realize that, uh, you know, the, the, the time has changed. So they already have a profitable business, but to really be able to survive for the next five, 10 years and to really build, a, a, you know, a national story, they have to step up, you know, to, to play a different game. And that's why the company I'm dealing with, all of them, they are profitable. All of them, they could, you know, even just go to a bank to, to borrow some money. But they want my support because I'm approaching them more like as a consultant. Like we really work hands on even before putting money to be able to to show like basically you know which how can we support and and really get involved operationally. So yeah, it's efficiency, but it's not just on the financial part. We really get into in the operation as well because the competition is there. I believe there is a strong you know this uh, from the opening there would be a lot of you know new players. Very, you know, a big consolidation, especially for the local players. So few winners they will survive, but the one that they make it, like if you can see in other, in other account, in other markets in uh, in Asia, the one that survive, they they can really dominate their category. So my goal is basically to select the company, the concept where I I believe we can, you know, we can be one of the top three in the category and support them to to get there against the international competition, which I'm sure in they are not going to touch every every segment of uh, of a business, but they might stay more like the mid-high, and I probably the concept I'm looking at like more like mid-low, uh, like more for mass market, and that is where I think is the sweet spot for, for local company to really be able to dominate regionally, uh, first of all nationally, and then uh, go into the region in another, in another similar country. Can you just clarify for me, so what changed from a regulation standpoint in 2015 that made these companies realize that they had to start competing with potential foreign businesses before 2015 for example you have the economic um, test the ENT test so basically in theory maybe you could uh, invest in a company and a retailer as a foreigner what happened that when you have to open the second location basically you have to go for a licensing ask for the local authority local government and it may take up to two years to get the license so if you have you know a chain of 30 40 shops and you need to to ramp up to 200, 300, and if every shop it takes a couple of years to have a license, that would be really quite, uh, right. you know, that quite challenging. That doesn't work. So that, yeah, it doesn't work. So that was one of the the measure, and uh, and you know, and then step by step, they started from FMB, for example, that is a sector that I like it, and I'm quite uh, you know keen always to, to look at. 
also the same the same they now as a foreigner you can you can invest and the, the company where you invested is not treated differently as you know as a local company so that's uh, make things easier when you try to ramp up and um and that's, I mean, that's the direction. So I'm sure it will be much, you know, at some point it will be, if you're a foreigner, if you're local, it will be almost treated the same way. Uh, and, uh, and that's, you know, is a, is a fact. And uh, companies, they can see, like, if you see they open uh, in Vincom, in the center, you know, in a mall in the center of Ho Chi Minh City, they open Zara, H&M recently. And, uh, I mean, there was, like, thousands of, like, it was really... Is really crazy, like the number of people and the clients in the first few days, and everyone thought there was just the opening. But after months, if you go to Zara at night, it's full of people. So that that is something that other retailer they, they that they see they they see, and at the end is uh, retail space is uh, you can sell uh, apparel, you can sell whatever is at the end you have to pay a rent, and uh, you have to sell something and make sure you have enough margin to you know to cover your cost and make profit. So everything you, if you are a retailer, even if you sell the different categories, you you can see there is you know there is competition because uh, if if uh, you know an international player take goes to to bid for a, you know for a space, they might pay much higher rent because at the end they might even account for a, that's a, an investment and not even care about how much return they make on their that specific shop. Uh, so all these as- aspects that make tougher for local players to really be able, you know, to to keep growing in the way they were doing before. That seems like just, you know, keep opening shops and everything will be fine. Now they, I'm sure they also in terms of they look at the numbers, the rent will get higher, profitability get lower, and the and the client itself they start to go into the international brands. They start to, you know, to they might say we are proud to. To, to buy or endorse Vietnamese company, but if you look at the number of clients that were these uh, foreign players, it means that actually if we're with media, the social media and so on, they really could get into the art of Vietnamese people way before they really physically opened the, sh- the location. I was amazed that this kind of brand, some of them, like uh, it was Pull and Beer, which is uh, uh, still in text group and so on, they were I was not. I mean, I just brief, you know briefly know them before, but I could see like from the number of people, the kind of uh, local people really going to, to you know to the shop and so on. I can definitely say these people they knew the brand way before me. That was a bit surprising, and I guess uh, you know the, the role of social media is quite uh, is quite clear. And uh, comparing to China, probably that uh, you know they've been a bit uh, a bit more open on that, and that's uh, uh, probably is uh, like an accelerator of what is a. Uh, in terms of the adoption of the local consumer for foreigner brand and products. Right, so this is interesting to me, right? If I look at your profile, you mentioned from the beginning that so F&B, food and beverage, and also fast-moving consumer goods and retail was a place where you were focusing from the beginning. What yeah. was it about your experience up until the founding of Maestro mm-hmm. that led you to believe that those sectors would be so powerful? Or is it just the case that Vietnam is at a stage of economic development where kind of everything is growing so fast and that everything's a possibility, and you just chose a sector that you really enjoy and that you like so much. Like, is it is it sector specific or is it or is it economy specific? No, I would say it's a sector specific. And um, the first consideration definitely is a sector that I like. Is something that also, on a marketing standpoint, you know, you mentioned about you know getting funded and being Italian on a marketing point of view. If you invest in in a retailer and F and B, they kind of get it. Like they think, okay. You might bring a bit more, you know, higher standards. Retail is all about at the end is uh, you know it's quite a simple business, but it's about detail. So 
I don't know. It seems that uh, people that you know they they want to invest, they 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 think that is a plus, but uh, on reality, I think is uh, is more about okay. We are in a stage of a country that you know people really love to consume. Like I, I heard uh, talk with some local people here, and they say you know when I was a kid, I would go with my you know my parents in a, in a supermarket, and they were you know counting like making the check of what we could buy or not. And now it's like just the feeling go inside and be able to buy whatever I want. Something that, you know, from the West world, uh, I take for granted. Probably my grandparents during the war, they could have that kind of feeling. But right. this is uh, for these people, it's like just the, the ability to go there and maybe don't even need something, but the ability to, to spend is something that easily, you know, is boosting the definitely the, the, the consumer, the, the consumism in on this country. Um, but then is retail and not just the economy that is, uh, I mean, it's definitely growing at an interesting pace. Why? Because it's more, it's more practical. Uh, investor, you know, you like to, min- they like to minimize risk and to, to have higher returns. And uh, re- retail is basically in the value chain is basically the part that is uh, required less capital and is where you get, uh, you know, higher margin. And uh, so it's easier to project, okay, in five years I can really make five times my money, which is usually a bit the the, the rule uh, that I keep in mind when I when I need to to consider an investment, and uh, if you have to consider to start into production or invest in uh, cap- in other kind of capacity, you know that uh, it might take uh, longer because you still there are so many steps before getting to the market to the ends of the consumer that you want just to get basically to cut that and just get the last part, which is basically okay. Already production, they already is a proof concept. People already know it. They just need to get, you know, really scale it and make it more operationally like sustainable and go everywhere in the country. Like this is uh, the step that is make easier to predict, uh, you know, that you can make a good return without taking too much uh, too, mu- too much risk. Right. I mean, and this is so. It's this is very different, obviously, from the venture capital world and sort of the tech mm-hmm. startup space where you can get a much better sense for what your returns are going to be over time, particularly for a business yeah. that's already operating. So talking about investment a, a little bit more in, in a little bit more detail, do mm-hmm. you raise capital prior to understand, not understanding, but to knowing what your investment targets are? In other words, do you have an LPGP structure where you have a pool of capital that's ready to be invested or are you more likely to sort of find an opportunity and then go to a group of people and say, we should invest our money in this thing and then pull that capital on a sort of an LLC or a one-off, a special purpose company basis and then invest it in that and then provide services to that company? Like what's the structure for the way this works for people that are listening? Yeah, so basically what I realize, first of all, I'm realistic. Like first-time fund will really get really, you know, a lot of time to get uh, funding in a blind uh, structure. And uh, I can see talking a bit with a few family offices that I'm familiar with that people don't really like much if they can choose to to invest in blind money, especially in a market like Vietnam that in the past 20 years, like especially the first funds that they came in, they, you know, they didn't build really a good reputation. Like some people made money locally. Right. Yes. In many investors made money. I'm not, you know, not so, not so many. So what I try to do is like really, you know, Playing open, you know, open cards because I'm really confident on the projects that I'm working on. I have companies that they don't really want to just raise money; they want to work with me and my team. And I have few few families office that I know that they kind of like this uh, this space. So I have a few opportunities, 
and on a deal by deal basis for now is what uh, you know I put together two or three of them and I just make the investment for now then I you know when you do three four uh, good investments if you want to consider to go more on a like a fun blind fund structure I might consider but at this stage I can see really is a bit uh, what the I mean as long as I I'm confident on the project I'm bringing and uh, I have a good relationship with the people that trust my work and know me for a while I think is uh, I think that's the way to go and uh, and then after you might consider but uh, I think you know especially if you go after money from family offices that are people that made money themselves being an entrepreneur they really like to see what they are investing in so I'm keeping like a LGP GP structure but on a deal level which is uh, makes much easier because you might find the guy that made money out of retail and you know is happy to invest in uh, in a, in a retailer you find another guy that makes something more related to food so it is easier to you know to customize the deal and uh, with the different ap- appetite of your, your of your investor and um but uh, definitely before I work with the companies before even that so I I want before you know try to 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 bring up some opportunities I I have to feel comfortable in the direction the company is taking and then, and the company needs to be ready so with uh, with two three companies actually we we started to collaborate way earlier because uh, they were definitely not investable and the problem is basically if you are based in Hong Kong or in uh, in Zurich or in uh, in Singapore and you look at deal you look at a deal on a, you know on a screen and you need uh, just just based on number right so this kind of choice they might work in uh, in developed market but here most of the investment made by in private equity from this kind of investor looking at a pitch book bro, you know brought by brokers they are really really risky and uh, you know some of them actually they are scam um, but we are locally, we are here locally, so we definitely see if, you know, besides the numbers, which there is a lack of, you know, of course, is a corporate governance and, uh, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, accounting, finance, there is a lot of, you know, they are quite weak, these companies, but we know which one they really, you know, they're really doing well because we see, you know, daily, we see the traffic, we see many other aspects. So my work is basically to be able to make this company uh, to, to show them the world outside Vietnam that these are the winners um, because I think this is still really you know big value especially because as I mentioned about the lack of you know transparency and so on uh, you cannot just uh, bet on you know some you know some presentation that you receive on your desk in, in Hong Kong and, uh, and so that's part of my work and I, and there is work that you need to do much you know a lot of work you have to do before investing which is uh, no legal standpoint they have to be you don't want to bear too much risk for the investor financial you need to put the accounts in place correctly go through an audit and just to go through an audit in telling you is like is really like a big uh, a big step and there's a lot of work involved so i'm trying to get all of these aspects so legal legal aspect financial aspect and uh, operational aspect already already be before getting the, the investment because that's give uh, comfort to every you know anyone that is putting money that the direction of the company is making and uh, and also for me is basically give me myself comfort that the company is really you know we are able to work together because uh, of course when uh, companies they look for money they might seem collaborative but it's really in the daily daily operation that you want to see if if there is really a, is a partnership or not uh, as i said before you are a minority shareholder you need really to be able to influence 
and I don't believe, you know, legal uh, framework, yes, you have here, uh, applicable and enforceable, not sure. The only way, the way I look at the investments, it, you have to be relevant for your company. Otherwise, sooner or later, when things go bad or something, you know, it would be scrap. You're in a foreign, you know, foreign country. People here are different. They come out from the war. You know, we are, they're not like, you know, it's, it's really different mentality, different, uh, different uh, mindset, so um, different motivation. So that we have to be careful as a, as a foreigner playing, you know, in, in this market. So that's why I really need to see a bit, a bit more, you know, uh, kind of collaboration we can have, the direction we are taking, and then, I'm, you know, I'm comfortable to, to bring money to the table. Right. I mean, this seems to be like a recurring theme with the way you run a business, and you seem to have hit a sweet spot, right? This whole concept mm-hmm. of a foreigner coming into Vietnam to build a business really, really does necessitate building the proper relationships, but also having a collaborative um, opportunity as opposed to just mm-hmm. investing money, right? Money, in my mind, is a commodity. You can yep. find it sort of anywhere. And you're right, being on the ground as well means that you can sort of see the opportunity from the beginning, but also understand which opportunities are real and which opportunities are fake. And by building that relationship, not just with the companies with whom you're interacting, but also with the potential investors locally and globally, Mm -hmm. it seems like the right way to build a business. And that seems like a recurring theme. You mentioned this sense earlier, like it's not political, it's more relationship-based. Building Mm -hmm. that relationship takes time. So it does seem like the right strategy to me to not build, like you said, from the get-go, an LPGP structure, but just present the right deals with a good investment return. And over time, that investment mentality will kind of take care of itself, it seems to me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I agree. Okay. Yeah, and so you also mentioned when you talk about Maestro Equity Partners that the name of the company itself actually has, um, has a meaning in the sense that you could have just called it Maestro Capital. Yeah, correct. <laughs> That's good. Uh, you, you you got it then. Yeah. Yeah, but so what's your? I think I want you to sort of explain that in your own words. I think I understand it, but I want people that mm-hmm. are listening to understand the difference between just the the mentality that says I can call myself Maestro Capital and mean I'm just a source of money, even yeah. if I'm not. That's what it's going to seem like to people when I walk in the door, or I can mm-hmm. call myself Maestro Equity Partners, which means I'm. I mean, it's in the name, right? We used to joke about yeah. this when I was at work. It's in the name. I'm yeah. going to be an equity partner of yours. And what does that mean, not just from a not just from a sort of an external um, viewpoint, but what does it mean yeah. internally and like from a day to day operational standpoint? Can you just explain that as well? Yeah. So I mean, glad that you yeah, you you got the point. Is really that's that's why why we gave that name because uh, as I said, we realize especially at this time, you know, capital most of the funds already raise money. So what really company we're looking for, especially the you know the the good the good one, we're like really a partner, and uh, but that is easy to say to say than than doing. So that's why what what I mentioned before, the way you know starting to work together with the company before, and for me that means first of all to have you know a line of a, of a vision, and this is, seems uh, easy, but uh, sometimes they just. They grew up, you know, it's not easy. That is not easy. Actually. It's not easy, and especially this company, they you know they grew up in an environment there was not much competition, so they don't really have exposure to other markets. They don't see many risks. So first of all, like together, because sometimes I really help some of these company. They they don't dare to you know to dream big. They maybe are you know people that come from 
from really from poverty and they are able to make one or two million a year, how you can you know blame them that they, they just want to keep the, what they've been doing for you know forever, right? Right. So what I'm trying to first of all to build together a, a big vision if if is uh, something that appeals to them, and uh, and then when we start to work together, it means okay. After that, we go into okay. Then what it means? Let's translate it operationally. So we we go all the step, all the departments, what we can improve, what we can uh, you know we do better. And we try to have, a, first of all, as I said, we try to be laser focused on the sector we look at. So I don't, I don't believe much in the people and you know investors that say, oh, we have, uh, we can support you operationally, but then they invest in, you know, aerospace, like uh, in, in, then uh, retail, like ten different sectors. So I really believe in being uh, focused. And the second thing is because I mean, entrepreneurs, they, you know, you can. Maybe at the first meeting you might have like kind of few buzzwords and you might convince them. But when you really exactly. start to work together, if they if you know your stuff, I mean things come out. And especially because you don't have them already invested, I mean if they don't see the value, they would be able to just run away. Well, they'll so, notice it. They'll notice it right yeah. away, right? And, and like not to be too not to make too fine a point, but you can BS yeah. you can BS somebody at the beginning, but yeah. as you get into a longer conversation, you can tell whether they know what they're talking about or not. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. And uh, so that's happened with the, with a the company we are working now. So since the beginning, we, you know, uh, we start to build together with them, like give a big vision. They really buy into that. Then we start to work from, I said, like vision, then start, okay, what's your mission, vision? So that, and step by step, we go deeper, deeper into operation. So we started to basically fine tune their concept, standardize it. Uh, get you know understand the organization where they need, the, but ev- like weekly. So that means in term of practical term, it means that every week at least one full day we are you know f- with the company, and this I believe it should be like that for the first two years of an investment. Like really you know uh, get uh, really involved operationally, and I don't mind do the work that you know it seems a bit uh, as I said like investor. Some investor might look at you know down on this kind of very operational work. And I think actually is really the value that uh, we can bring. And this, uh, till you don't have that kind of understanding, I think is hard to support. It's, impo- so why it's impossible, right? I mean, yeah. if you don't get your hands dirty, then you're not really yeah. helping to operate the business. And I think what you're saying is that there's not a lot of prestige externally in saying, yeah. I, go in there, I go in there once a week or twice a week, I roll up my sleeves, I take off my jacket, and I actually do real work, right? There's some yeah. sense of entitlement, I think, that most investors have that says, I'm just here to raise money and I'll give you advice sort of, you mm-hmm. know, from a high level basis, but don't ask me to actually do anything hard. But what you're saying is that doing that hard work actually helps you get trust and also Try helps correct. you earn returns for your investors, but also it also gives you follow on business too, yeah? Yes. And uh, the, the amazing thing, like when I see other funds invest and they, you know, they have crazy valuation and why? Because, you know, then the companies, they, they just... We, they see them as a financial investor. They see m- me more as a partner. So when we start to go with valuation, as long you know, they they really basically don't negotiate. They see me as you know as a partner, so we can have something that is fair for both. And I open you know really play open cards, which is quite not so common usually as investor. You try to have your, in your mind the true value, and you know try to edge a bit the difference perception from ways the, the company and. And uh, your your view of the of the business, I try to you go there already with really open card. I showed their financial model, what is my return, what I expect to make, and so everyone you know see what's what we can achieve together. 
and, uh, and and going back on the um, on the involve, operational involvement, just to say, we we did that training to be able to go into the shop. I would like to do basically. I don't know if you're familiar with 3G in a story in a South uh, South America, what they did with the Burger King and so on. So they really are really involved operationally, and there is a story of the CFO, CEO of uh, sort of Burger King that you know spent some time within the you know the store. So I'm trying to do the same thing, basically. You know, we have a training and once a month, I would like myself and my colleagues to stay in the shop, like to do the work of, uh, you know, the last step of the, sure. the chain, like to sell the product, to see what is, you know, what's going on, what's the perception of the people and what all the advice we gave, actually, they are, you know, they are bringing any, making any impact. So uh, and always keep that kind of, uh, you know, like uh, feeling down to the to the consumer, which is, I think, for the sector I'm looking at, is really, really important. And uh, and also, like like the CEO, the moment he says uh, he sees this uh, kind of uh, you know involvement, they're really excited, and that's why I like the company I'm working now is uh, they've been approached by two, three other funds, and uh, you know, no problem. Tell me, like, yeah, they can't, but you know, they and they show me, like, oh yeah, they. They look like telemarketing, like in his mind, what he thinks is like, I see that you are, you know, like for me, it's a different discussion. This is, you know, these uh, CEOs, these founders are quite uh, young people that very simple people. So they want, um, you know, some kind of uh, operator where they can feel comfortable to work together and maybe ask advice on very, you know, very basic thing. But uh, that's part of, uh, of our work. And uh, when I feel comfortable, of course, they are running the business at the end of the day. So step by step, when I see that they, you know, they are able to do things by themselves, you know, I step back, uh, step by step. But at the beginning, I think really has to be a lot of, uh, you know, daily work and uh, from, you know, from all aspects. And I think is also part of uh, the reason why I really enjoy it. So uh, it's quite, it's quite fun. But uh, if you look at just as a time return point of view maybe other you know especially the big fund they don't see like uh, it's, it's too it's, it's not sustainable maybe as a model for them them i don't know right so uh, so i have a view on this and actually i find this conversation really interesting and i'll tell you why okay let's make an equivalency in the venture capital world and i want to ask you a question at the end of this uh, and that is you know you see some of your loudest and i don't use that term nicely but you see some of your loudest venture capitalists talking about how they're the most prolific investors or they make the most investments and to me that is a signal a tell it's a market signal that says we're going to make a ton of investments but we're not actually interested in any shape or form in your individual business because we can't focus on it at all right so in some cases you'll hear you know vcs raise you know call it 25 50 million dollars and say we're going to make 20 investments a year it just seems like too many to me right and i was originally going to ask you you know, how many investments or how many businesses can you sort of invest in in a year? And I realized it was actually the wrong question. The real mm -hmm. question is, how many clients can you serve at one point in time? Because you're not just, an investment for you is not just like two months of due diligence, sending in some capital and walking away and going to a board meeting once a quarter. It's more like we're going to do, I'm guessing it's something like three to five at a time. And that could take two to three years each to actually come to a point where, you can step away because then you've had your full level of impact. So how many do you think you can do at one, mm -hmm. at, like concurrently? Yeah, so uh, this is, yeah, this is a, uh, definitely a fair comment, especially at the beginning that I want to try to be 
really involved, not just I mean with the clients, but also with the you know with the, my company that just uh, started. Correct. So I would say probably two or threes, or you know that's I would be more than happy if in one year I you know I follow two three companies at the same time, and uh, so that that said means that for me in the next you know two three years if I make four or five good investments. I'm quite happy because uh, I mean this company also I'm trying to really the one I'm spending so much time I also the one that I really believe I start to raise a bit the bar so I mean of course the you know the threshold I think the five times in five years but some of this company I really believe they can be 10 times for example so I think it's still worth instead of you know going uh, for especially the kind of uh, size you have is still quite small market so you really have to pick uh, the you know the big winner and if you pick you know the Three, four, like uh, good, good companies, and I think is uh, you know that's make make uh, the, the economics work. So plus, you really have you know I think is uh, the feeling you have when you really be part of something like that is is great. I mean, is uh, so I would never be able to witness and take part of this kind of growing you know in uh, in my country and uh, is uh, seeing these people like uh, just you know getting their business bigger and. All you know, also the impact that they have, like in terms of employment, and as you know, and like all the people that they start to go on board and work with them, is is really is really exciting, it's really energetic, and that I think is uh, is what uh, I miss back in in the old Europe, like in terms of uh, uh, feeling. So. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a you make a really interesting point, right? And that's why I wanted to bring up that that question of how many can you do concurrently? Because I I would say actually, if you look at the most impactful and the most mm-hmm. successful venture capitalists as well, right? Without sort of putting, again, without making too much of an equivalency, is they don't invest in a ton of companies. They highly curate what they choose to invest in, and they as well also try to add value as a partner as opposed to just making capital injections. I'm a really firm believer, I said this earlier, mm-hmm. but I'll say it again to make the point that money and capital injection is a commodity. Anybody who has money can do it, but it's adding that extra value that turns that return from a two times return or one time return into a five to 10 time return. And the only mm-hmm. way to do that is by really getting in the weeds, getting your hands dirty and doing the types of things that you and your colleagues do. So for me, when I look at the private equity space, I really want to look at firms like yours that are actually going down and doing the hard work and really becoming partners as opposed to just an investment vehicle, which is, again, why I asked that question earlier, what the structure was. And to be fair, if your investors are also entrepreneurs, their mm-hmm. ability to determine what is sort of a valid business and isn't a valid business is way stronger than a normal investor, than a normal venture capitalist who's either A, never run a business or only run one type of business that maybe succeeded too quickly, their ability to analyze has nothing to do with yours and your partner's ability to analyze. I think it's a much better model. And I actually yeah. think that even as you get bigger, right, and unsolicited mm-hmm. advice, but even as you get bigger, the idea that you're an equity partner and not just sort of a capital injector is a way to continuously sustain that business. You don't really care, actually to do 100 deals a year, maybe three to five mm-hmm, at mm-hmm. any point in time, because yeah. if your returns are five to 10 times, that's an incredible business. But the impact as well is also yeah. huge. You know, you talked earlier about employment. Like, I get the happiest when I make an investment or I help a company that ends up employing 40, 50, 60 people. That, that really makes me happy because now you're changing lives across the board. Yeah. 
And uh, going back what you mentioned before about the structure, that's also why I think, uh, be, you know, besides, as I told you, like uh, the time will take just to raise a close-up fund. But the second point is really about giving the flexibility to don't have the pressure to deploy because I, you know, in the firm I was before, I could see at the end, sometimes you take deals which are not great, but just because you have a pressure because the time, you know, the, the clock start ticking and you have to deploy capital. So you really have to, you know, to compromise and just pick a company where you, you might not really be comfortable, but you say, okay, anyway, I need to deploy capital. Otherwise I get pressure from my investor that, you know, they, they start to question that uh, if I really have a, you know, good pipeline and so on. And you make like some, you know, start to really put things really stretch. And I don't want that, especially at the beginning. I really, you know, this is a first time fund. I really want to have, uh, you know, the first you know, few days that they really have to shine like I, and I want to, to show the work. So no pressure, like just do the, with the company I feel comfortable and do the work and I'm sure, you know, time will, uh, will say if, uh, if, you know, if things are, are done properly. So, No, look, and I think you made a really good point here too and this is something that most people outside of the investment business either don't understand or ignore and that is once you raise a fund, there is pressure to actually deploy that capital. Deploy, yeah. You have to, because you have to make a return, and that return, unfortunately, is judged over a specific amount of time. And that time is, in a way, it's random, right? Like three years, two years, it doesn't mean much in the concept mm. of, in the context of actually building a business, which may, for a certain business, take six months, and another business takes six years. It's just how much effort you want to put into it. But if you have, like you said, a $25 million fund, you're under a ton of pressure to, to what I say is to make a bad investment. Yeah, correct. Yeah, and I don't think most people understand that. Mm -hmm. um, so, so you've been at this at your on your own business for how long now? Uh, we started in uh, April. Awesome. So, yeah. <laughs> awesome. So this is a really exciting time for you. Like, are you in a growth phase? Are you hiring people? Like, how do you see this thing developing over time? Yeah. So for the next uh, year, I think uh, as I said I try to you know close uh, two or three investments. And I think for till that time, probably, you know, the team we have, we have four people, I think is uh, is enough. But, uh, you know, definitely after that, I, you know, would like to not change in a, in a way, probably be, you know, less involved in the business, but probably, you know, to, to try to to replicate and maybe find, you know, other people with uh, with strong uh, consulting background and uh, passion for, for really to support uh, companies to be able to, you know, to escalate. And, uh, and start to look at outside Vietnam because I, I see common teams in other markets as well. And uh, as I believe in an industry focus instead of, uh, instead of just a country focus, I believe, you know, would be really valuable if, uh, if we can leverage this experience in this sector in, in other markets as well. So I, I, you know, I want, I believe at this time, like, cannot be any more just uh, a consumer or like big, uh, big team. But I really believe in the in the leverage of being industry expert or some specific sector, and uh, on that you can really start to to look at other markets and start to be creative around you know that uh, that industry that you you start to build the competency on. Yeah, I agree with you. Look, I, I don't want to take up much more of your time, but I think you've hit a sweet spot. And if you continue to grow the business in the way that you have up until now, I think mm -hmm. the opportunities you know are just massive. Mm -hmm. And not just in Vietnam, you have you do have a chance to build a really large business and a really large practice. Um, look, I really want to thank you, Giovanni, for taking the time early in the morning to to come and talk to us. And hopefully, 
will be able to come back to you um, periodically and just get updates on what you're doing, what you're yeah. seeing, and how you see the market growing. Because I think you have a unique insight, actually, into what's going there. And I really appreciate your business philosophy. And I want to kind of watch this develop over time. So I really appreciate your time. And just want to thank you for, uh, for this morning. I really appreciate yeah. it. Thanks for it was a really interesting conversation. Really appreciate it. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at www.asiatechpodcast.com.